The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for being here today for another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. It felt so strange not posting an episode last week and I am very happy to be back today. If you missed the update I gave in episode 30, I've temporarily switched to a fortnightly podcast schedule. This is just whilst I figure out the most efficient way of bringing back our weekly episodes, which I hope to do as soon as possible. A big thank you to all of you for being so supportive and understanding. You are all amazing and I appreciate each and every one of you. So today, I felt that we were overdue a true crime story. And as I was poking around looking for a case to cover, I stumbled across one that merges the true crime side of the podcast with the paranormal side. Or does it? I'm going to be telling you all about the case known as the Red Barn Murder, which took place in the village of Polstead in the southern English county of Suffolk back in 1827. There is an apparent supernatural twist to this tale, and I'm actually surprised that I hadn't heard of this case until I started my research for this episode. It's not only a truly tragic story, but I think this paranormal element really captured the public's imagination and countless songs and plays and even a film were based around the Red Barn murder after the event. A quick warning that this episode does feature some quite gory details, including an account of the killing of a woman. And I'll also briefly be mentioning the deaths of two children, so I just wanted to let you know upfront that it gets pretty heavy. But without further delay, join me as we head back to early 1800s Suffolk where a tight-knit community was about to be changed forever. On the 24th of July, 1801, a couple from the small village of Polstead, Grace and Thomas Martin, welcomed a baby girl into the world. They named her Maria, and from an early age, she proved to be an intelligent and observant child. A twist of fate meant that she would actually go on to receive an education, which was quite unusual for a girl from such a rural area at the time, and especially one who came from a low-income family. Maria was sent to live with the family of a local clergyman when she was still very young, and alongside helping out in their nursery, she was also taught how to read and write, both of which she did very well. However, when she was just nine years old, tragedy first struck the Martin family, when Grace unfortunately passed away. Now, not only did Maria have to cope with the death of her mother, but she was also made to leave the clergyman's home and her education to return to her own family to take care of her younger siblings. When she was still very much a child herself, she took on this motherly role to her brothers and sisters. And whilst this could have easily spelled the end for her academically, Maria had other ideas. A journalist from the time, James Curtis, described her as blessed with a very retentive memory, and her mind deeply imbued with a desire to acquire useful knowledge, which explains why many believe she continued learning off her own bat after returning to Polstead. 
as Maria grew into a young woman, she's often described as being pretty or attractive, as well as very pleasant and friendly. And it seems that she caught the eye of several local men, many of whom were relatively well off financially. Enter into the story Thomas Corder the son of a wealthy farmer who regularly visited the Martins' cottage, as he knew Maria's father through his work as a mole catcher. Thomas Corder was one of Maria's numerous admirers, but as their social standings were quite different, he informed her that should they become romantically involved, it would have to be in secret. Drawn in by Thomas's decent looks and good standing in their community, she agreed to his terms and their relationship quickly progressed to being a physical one. Before long, Maria fell pregnant, and as this was the early 1800s, there was now, of course, the expectation that she and Thomas would get married. Thomas, however, soon showed his true colours as not only did he flat out refuse to propose to Maria, but he gradually stopped showing up to the Martins' home and provided very little financial support. Now, the timelines here are a little unclear, but sadly, we do know that Maria and Thomas's baby did not survive for very long after birth, which is awful. And it seems that this also spelled the end of the couple's association with one another. Now, after recovering from this terrible loss, Maria was pursued by another local man named Peter Matthews, who's been described as a well-respected gentleman. Bear in mind the time in history that we're talking about when I tell you this next part, but after becoming pregnant by a man she wasn't married to, Maria was considered to be a, quote, fallen woman. In other words, someone who would now not be thought of as a respectable spouse. Ridiculous, of course, but that was the 1800s for you. However, Peter Matthews didn't appear to be put off by Maria's status, and the two began seeing each other. She fell pregnant once again, and when their son was born, he was thankfully a healthy and happy baby, who they named Thomas. Which I thought was a little strange, considering that was her ex's name, but then I remembered it's also her father's name, so this makes more sense. Now, although Peter did provide for his child financially, once again, Maria received no marriage proposal and was left to raise her son alone. That was until the man whose name those familiar with this story will already know entered the picture, William Corder. And yes, you heard his surname correctly. William was, in fact, the younger brother of Maria's first partner, Thomas. By the time William and Maria became an item, around March of 1826, not only had his brother Thomas actually passed away in an accident whilst trying to cross a frozen pond, but his other two brothers and his father had also perished, all within the space of around 18 months. William had returned to Polstead from London after the deaths of his family members to help his mother run the family farm, and this is how he ended up becoming close with Maria. Now, William here had quite the reputation. His nickname at school had been Foxy, as it was said he had a sly and untrustworthy nature, and even though he was just 22 when he headed back to the village, he'd managed to get himself embroiled in all kinds of trouble in those years. These incidents ranged from fraudulently selling livestock from his father's farm, to forging cheques and just plain theft, including one instance that I'll come back to in a moment. 
So William and Maria began a relationship, but once again it was all very secretive. The pair would meet in private, and didn't disclose anything about their union until Maria became pregnant for the third time. However, unlike with Peter Matthews, William seemed to be happy about this development in their lives, and he began to visit Maria's home more and more frequently. His mother, though, was less thrilled about the situation than her son, and many believe this is one of the reasons why William too refused to marry Maria, despite telling her over and over again that he was going to propose. In 1827, at the age of 25, she gave birth to their child, but was devastated when the baby didn't survive, passing away within just a month. The couple told their loved ones that they were taking their child to the nearby town of Sudbury to be buried, but it's widely believed that they actually laid the baby to rest in a field nearer to home. More on that later. So of course, by this point, Maria was dealing with a huge amount of emotional trauma, not only due to the loss of two of her three children, but also because she'd been continually lied to by the men she'd become involved with being led to believe that they would marry and support her after becoming pregnant. But just six weeks after giving birth to her child with William, Maria's story would take an unthinkable turn. And it all began with a conversation held between the couple in the presence of Maria's stepmother, Anne Martin. Maria's dad had remarried several years after her mother Grace passed away. And despite Anne being only a little bit older than her stepdaughter, she and Maria seemed to get on well. On the day this conversation took place, William had told Maria that she should meet him at a building known as the Red Barn, around half a mile away from her home. William claimed that there were rumours that she was going to be prosecuted by the local authorities for having children out of wedlock, which is bizarre, but again, 1800s. He told her that once they met at the Red Barn, that they would then elope and marry in the town of Ipswich, before returning home to Polstead once the dust had settled. On Friday the 18th of May, 1827, William turned up at the Martins' cottage to make sure Maria was ready to go. She was, but she was concerned that the authorities might spot her trying to sneak away from the village and she wanted to disguise herself by wearing men's clothing as she left her home. And Martin was there to witness all of this. And whilst Maria made her final preparations to leave, William went ahead to the Red Barn to wait for her. When Maria left the cottage that day, it was the last time she would ever be seen alive. After she vanished following her journey to the Red Barn, William also disappeared from the village. But as all of this appeared to be in line with the conversation they'd had in front of Anne, it was presumed that they were indeed in Ipswich. However, when William reappeared back in Polstead without Maria, people began to grow suspicious. At first, he attempted to explain it all away, saying that they felt it was just too soon for them to arrive back as a married couple and just expect everyone to accept them, as they assumed that many people would be upset about the elopement. But after a while, no one was buying this excuse anymore, and William was forced to leave the village. 
and I imagine make out that he was going to collect Maria from wherever she was staying. But instead, he began to send letters back to her family saying that they were living on the Isle of Wight and that she couldn't write herself because she'd either hurt her hand or she wasn't well. But given Maria's closeness to her family and William's dodgy reputation, these explanations were viewed as completely inadequate and the Martins were starting to get incredibly worried. This was all compounded by the fact that William had recently fallen in with a local known criminal, Samuel Beauty Smith, just before Maria had disappeared and had helped him in that theft I referenced earlier. The duo had stolen a pig from a neighbouring village and the whole incident had just made William's character seem even more questionable. It wasn't just during the daytime that the family's thoughts were consumed with wondering where Maria really was though. The last person to see her in the village, her stepmother Anne, had started to have some very strange dreams. As she slept, she would visualise the red barn and everything would feel very sinister. Soon, the dreams became more vivid and she couldn't help but share what she'd been experiencing with her husband. Anne told him that she believed Maria had been killed and buried at the barn and her retellings of the dreams were so compelling that Thomas Martin agreed to investigate further. When he and Anne arrived at the Red Barn, she directed him towards a grain storage bin that she'd seen in her visions, and Thomas started to dig through its contents to see if there could be any shred of truth to what his wife was telling him. Both tragically and completely bizarrely, it would not be long before her premonition was proven correct. This is really disturbing, but buried within the grain in an old sack were the remains of Maria Martin. Her body was badly decomposed, but still just about identifiable. And although her father and stepmother were sure it was her, a formal identification still had to be carried out. Maria's sister, who was also named Anne, was the one to confirm that the remains were definitely those of the intelligent, kind-hearted 25-year-old. There were several physical characteristics which helped in this process. For example, her hair and clothing were instantly recognisable to Anne, and Maria had a missing tooth which was consistent with the remains. Her cause of death was initially attributed to a combination of being shot through her left cheek and also being stabbed in both her neck and torso. Upon inspection, there was a certain item found with her body that gave police the evidence they needed to implicate William in Maria's murder. A green handkerchief known to belong to him, which was tied tightly around her neck. Now to the family, whilst they were shocked and distraught at the loss, they were not altogether surprised to find this tangible evidence that William was the one responsible for her death. But the question was, why? What possible reason could he have had to take the life of this well-loved daughter, sister and mother? Well, in a tale as old as time, the answer is that there was no reason. Maria had simply been assertive and was refusing to let William walk all over her. There had been several arguments between the pair in the lead up to Maria's murder. One of the main problems centred around a missing payment that had been made by Peter Matthews by way of child support for his and Maria's son. 
Peter had given Maria a sum of money which had suspiciously vanished, and she was sure that the only person who could have possibly taken it was William. He furiously denied the accusation, although given that we know he later committed an act of murder and was known to have stolen in the past, I think we could say with a fair degree of certainty that he was the culprit. There were apparently further subjects that had caused the couple to row shortly before Maria went missing. One was, naturally, the topic of marriage. She was pushing for William to be true to his word, and help to repair some of the damage done to her standing in society by marrying her, but he was reluctant and grew angry with her for bringing it up. There was also tension surrounding the burial place of their baby. Sources do tend to vary when it comes to the details of the child's birth and resting places. But it seems to me that whilst Maria wanted to give the baby a proper funeral, William wanted to keep everything under the radar. The fact that his answer to the problems raised in these disagreements was to kill Maria in cold blood is obviously disgusting but thankfully his capture was more straightforward than the initial discovery of his crime. By this point, William had headed back to London, and whilst he was there, it appears he wasted no time in getting his romantic life back on track. I know, he is genuinely the very worst. He had actually put a letter in the Times newspaper advertising for a wife, if you can believe it and apparently had over a hundred responses. Suspiciously, in my opinion, the respondent he ended up choosing was a woman named Mary Moore, who he had previously met on the Isle of Wight. By November, they were married, and they even set up a school for young women in West London. Clearly, William was confident enough that he had concealed his awful crime against Maria that he was building this whole new life, feeling sure that no one would be coming after him to hold him to account. But he could not have been more wrong. Thanks to Anne's astonishingly accurate dreams, the hunt for William was very much on. A Polstead constable called Mr Ayers requested the assistance of a London police officer, James Lee, and together they tracked William down to the school he had opened. James Lee managed to secure a meeting with the suspect by pretending he had a daughter who was interested in attending the school. But during their conversation, he revealed his true reason for wanting to speak with William, faithful to his nickname of Foxy. William, of course, denied ever knowing a woman named Maria Martin, trying desperately to wriggle his way out of any further questioning but the two officers now had access to search the premises, and found a number of items which strongly indicated that William had planned to leave the country. These included a passport issued to him by the French ambassador, and a pair of pistols, and the police officers wasted no time in arresting Maria's former partner. From London, they took him back to Suffolk to stand trial in a town called Bury St Edmunds but due to the huge amount of attention and publicity the case had generated, the trial was delayed until August of 1828. And when I tell you that the whole thing was a huge spectacle, I am not exaggerating. There are reports of hotels in the town being completely full by the July, as people gathered to take in every detail of the proceedings. The authorities actually had to introduce a ticketing system for the courtroom, as so many people were demanding to be present to watch the trial take place. 
Disturbingly, in my opinion, the interest around the case had become so sensational that there was even a play written and performed about it before William's trial even started. Memorabilia was even being sold, including pottery models of the Red Barn, which must have been so upsetting for Maria's family. The whole thing had become a circus. We think things can be pretty bad these days with social media and the rapid spread of information, but when you look back into history, perhaps the way some people behave when it comes to active criminal cases hasn't changed all that much since 1828. At his trial, William actually pleaded not guilty. There was quite a bit of confusion within the proceedings about Maria's exact cause of death. Given the different kinds of injuries on her body, plus the handkerchief tied around her neck, which could have indicated strangulation. Nonetheless, it clearly didn't look good for William, and in the end, he was actually charged with nine different crimes, including forgery. Several members of Maria's family gave evidence at the trial, including Anne, who told the court about her dreams and Anne's son and Maria's half-brother, George, who said he had seen William with a pistol and a pickaxe just before the murder took place. William argued that the newspaper coverage of his arrest had already condemned him in the eyes of the public, saying, "'By that powerful engine of the press, I have been described as the most depraved of human monsters.'" And in the end, although a couple of witnesses did come forward to try and defend his character, William Corder was found guilty of Maria's murder, but there was to be no life imprisonment for this divisive figure. He was sentenced to death by hanging, but that wasn't all. It was also decided that his body would then be dissected and anatomized. And it seems this was the part of his sentence that really shook William. The idea of not being buried in a grave was too much to bear which is ironic, considering that's the exact fate he initially handed to Maria. His execution was set for just three days later, and it's reported that he spent those days contemplating whether he should confess to the sin of murder, and, in his mind, cleanse himself of it in the eyes of God. After several people urged him to come clean, including his wife and the prison chaplain, William finally confessed to killing Maria saying he accidentally shot her in the eye during an argument at the Red Barn. His hanging was then carried out as planned, in front of thousands upon thousands of spectators in Bury St Edmunds, and his last words were, I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate, and may God have mercy on my soul. Afterwards, over 5,000 people queued up to see his body, and the next day an autopsy and dissection was performed for medical students from Cambridge, as well as a number of physicians. Interestingly, when his skull was examined, it was proclaimed that its development indicated William was, quote, profoundly developed in the areas of secretiveness, acquisitiveness, and destructiveness, amongst others. 
His skeleton was later exhibited at the West Suffolk Hospital, and death masks were made of his face. But perhaps the most fascinating thing that his body was used for after his execution is that some of his skin was tanned and used to bind a book detailing his crimes. Which honestly sounds like something out of Silence of the Lambs, and made me feel a bit queasy when I first read it. However, our story doesn't quite end there. Since the time the case took place, Several rumours followed those involved, which, if true, would cast the events in a whole new light. The first rumour surrounded the idea that perhaps Maria and William's child did not die of natural causes, and was potentially killed by William. This could then explain why he was so secretive about where the baby was buried, and wanted to keep the death somewhat off the record. Many do accept, though, that the child was very poorly, and there's every chance that they did, in fact, succumb to their ailments, but the suggestion is still pretty widely cited. But the second rumour is one that people seem to find much more compelling, and involves the possibility that Maria's stepmother Anne was not as innocent of a party as we were led to believe. With her being so close in age to the couple, it's been suggested that she and William were in fact having an affair, and that they had conspired together to kill Maria so that she was out of the picture. We know that things like this do happen. There are countless true crime cases which follow this exact sequence of events, but in this instance it would also tie in to Anne's dreams. Apparently, these visions only began once word had got out that William had married Mary Moore in London. It's been theorised that Anne was so overcome with jealousy, she made up the dreams as a way of accusing William without implicating herself directly. I must say that as much as I am a believer in the paranormal and things like psychic visions, something about this idea does feel possible. I personally have an additional thought on the case which is to do with Mary Moore. Could it instead have been that William had already met Mary whilst he was still with Maria, and his actual plan was to kill her so that he was free to marry Mary? A third party being involved feels much more likely to me than the idea that he accidentally shot her. I think it would be fairly difficult to unintentionally shoot someone in the eye, who is just casually aiming a gun at someone's head by accident. In my opinion, I think William knew exactly what he was doing, and planned to take Maria's life in order to pursue whatever or whomever had caught his eye. Regardless, I think it's safe to say that he was a real piece of work, and a very dangerous person to be around. In 2004, almost 180 years after being hanged, William's remains were cremated at a South London crematorium, and a BBC article from the time notes that there were plans to bury his ashes back in Polstead. I wanted to leave you with one final odd twist, and it concerns the criminal associate of William's I mentioned earlier, Samuel Beauty Smith. Beauty was his nickname, by the way. I don't know if it was because he was very good looking or very much not so, and it was used in a sarcastic way, but anyway. On the occasion that he and William got into trouble for stealing that pig, he was questioned by the local police about the incident and William's involvement. In this interview, Beauty said something that, in hindsight, is pretty wild, considering the fate that William met only a couple of years later. And what were those prophetic words? I'll be damned if he will not be hung some of these days. Well, there we have it. That is the story of the Red Barn Murder. 
and I for one am scratching my head trying to decide exactly what I think happened. I want to believe that Anne's dreams were truly some kind of psychic experience, guiding the Martin family to find their missing loved one's remains, but there is part of me that understands why the rumour about her possible involvement started. Ultimately, I just feel so terrible for Maria. She had so much tragedy in her short life, and her poor son was left behind too. What happened to her was just so senseless and cruel. As always, please do let me know your thoughts and theories as to what you believe took place. And if you happen to be listening from Suffolk, do get in touch and let me know whether you'd already heard about this case. I hear it's still very much talked about to this day. But before we wrap the episode up, it's that time once again. Here is the outro feature I like to call Weird Media. This time round, I have something a little different to recommend to you all, and it is a YouTube channel. So a good few years ago now, probably around 2018, I stumbled across a lady called Christina Randall on YouTube, and I was fascinated by her from the word go. Her early videos are all centred around her experience of being sentenced to three years in prison in the US state of Florida. At the time, she was only 21 years old, and in her videos she talks about how she turned her life around after being released. Her story time videos and explanations of aspects of prison life that many of us would simply never know about otherwise are truly mind-boggling and shatter any illusions created by films and TV shows about the realities of being locked up. But also, in more recent years, Christina has pivoted her content to be more true crime focused, and she will often follow live trials very closely, and provide updates on active cases that are mostly US focused. There is just something about Christina that I find very endearing. I feel that she's very real and very honest, and over the years there have been things that she said that I don't necessarily agree with, and I think she's a very different person to me, But nevertheless, even when her thoughts and opinions don't line up with mine, I still find her perspective really interesting. For example, her approach to covering true crime cases is completely different than mine. But I think sometimes due to her life experiences, which she does talk about in depth in her earlier videos, she has quite a unique way of thinking about situations and I do respect that. She has this really consistent intro to her videos, which is almost like a little speech that she gives. And after all these years, I can actually speak along with it, which my husband found quite odd when I first did it in front of him. I don't do it every time, but anyway. I think of it like singing along to the theme song of a show you like. I actually listen to Christina's videos like podcasts rather than sitting in front of a screen looking at it the whole time. It's always when I'm doing my makeup or cleaning the house. Does anybody else do that with YouTube videos? If the answer is yes and you're looking to switch up your subscription feed, I would definitely recommend checking out Christina Randall. She's super engaging and so interesting to listen to. Okay, time for a quick rundown of the sources that helped me when I was putting this episode together. First up, there was this great fact file page from the website saintedmundburychronicle.co.uk, which details loads of different historical happenings in West Suffolk, and it was super helpful. There was a piece from Great British Life from October 2019. I couldn't find the exact author, but it's well worth a read. The title of the article was What Really Happened with the Notorious Murder at the Red Barn in Polstead. There was also a massively detailed article 
article on Murderpedia about the case too. There's all sorts of information on there, including news clippings from the time about William's trial and execution. So that was really valuable too. Finally, there was that BBC article from 2004 that I mentioned, which detailed the cremation of William's remains. A little reminder of all the ways you can get in touch. On Facebook, we have both the main podcast page and the private discussion group too. If you search things are about to get weird over there, you'll find them both. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast and on Twitter, it's at abouttogetweird. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com and I always love to read your emails about your thoughts on our episode topics, plus your own strange or paranormal experiences too. So always feel free to pop me a note over there. We also have the Patreon page, which I will leave linked in the show notes for anyone who would like to show their support for the podcast. I'm so, so grateful to everyone who signs up over there. If you've enjoyed today's episode, it would be amazing if you could leave me a quick rating or review wherever you listen. It means a huge amount and is so helpful too. Thank you so much again for joining me today and I will talk to you in a fortnight. Once again, a huge thank you for being so understanding about this temporary schedule change. I appreciate you all more than I can say. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird. For the good kind of weird. Thank you.